Division with the leaders of our time. Let's join their journey and find out how they got to where they are today. These are the days I know, I know. Welcome to The Riddick Show. My name's Dave Kinley, and I am thrilled to have Steve Woods today in the beautiful CanArt Studio in downtown Toronto. I have known Steve Woods for over 25 years. We first met when he started the first impactful voice portal in the world, Quack.com, that most of the smart investors got involved with early on and contributed to most of the investment capital at that time. Steve and I sat on the board of a venture capital firm together. He ended up being a, an advisor to my organization for the next 20 years, helping me understand where technology was going and where it has been. And we've never stopped being friends since. But along with all of those achievements, Steve's also an avid fisherman, a scratch golfer, a huge supporter of women's hockey in Canada, and we are so lucky to be able to hear how this all happens from early on. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you for having me, Dave. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. I, I'm a big believer in leaders and, and people, as, as you know, and so I'm, I'm very uh, honored to be invited. Yeah, I grew up in a very small town. Uh, in northern Saskatchewan, uh, in a farming community, uh, to a family that um, was a farm ran a farm services business, um, and I had a very uh, fantastic childhood. I would say I had an opportunity to do many many things. I was surrounded by a lot of interesting people, um, a culture that was certainly hockey oriented, <laughs> for sure. Um, but you know, we had a lot of hardworking people who were great role models uh, over the years, and I think. There's a lot of advantages to growing up in a small town that people don't always understand. And, and I think that's very formative into who I am today. And I've spoken to a lot of other people from small places. And we, we sort it's of amazing how many CEOs come from small, interesting, small places. I mean, uh, one of our recent guests, uh, Blake Hutchison, grew up in Huntsville. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, and it, it, there was huge benefits for him. So, yeah, I, I have a lot of friends. It's really interesting. You, you just meet them through hockey, obviously, but off other things. And, uh, you often have a lot in common, um, just different perspectives on things. And, and uh, I was very fortunate to be there. And quite often you grow up in a place where, uh, and this is true for a lot of my peers when I grew up, is that you weren't expected to stay. The expectation is that you would leave. And this right. was a non-optional component of growing up with my father, um, <laughs> for my brothers and my sister and I, is that we were expected to go to university and do something else and we weren't supposed to stay. Really? Absolutely. So there was no pressure to, to do one or the other? Oh no, there was pressure. We weren't staying. There was no way we were staying. Really? And that's yeah. uh, so how did he expect that the farm would would move along? Well, we had from a farm generation? services business. Like okay. so we like my <clears throat> my grandparents were farmers. Okay. Um and actually one grandparent actually came I'm, I'm really in, in one side of the family, uh, only a like a second generation Canadian because so they came from Scotland for the farming. Right. And um you know, that's a hard business. It's a hard business then, it's a hard business now. Really um and they did well, but at the same time, they understood the value, like many farmers, uh, of multiple businesses, whether it's, you know, different types of farming or diversity of your business, or it's an additional business on the side. Car dealerships is quite common, or in our cases, we transitioned into a number of things. My dad, uh, when he was younger, but eventually um, settled into farm services, like selling, mm. uh, with a really deep understanding of farming, um, you know, fuel oil, steel buildings, fertilizer, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, most, most people think it's just going out and milking the cows and the way. 
Right. And so, you know, they, my dad actually ran, I think I didn't understand that when I was young, but a fairly complicated business, you know, involving, you know, uh, partnerships and supply chains, which of course lately is a very big deal, but uh, uh, understanding how to work your way through, um, you know, what is often customers that have very challenging cash flow problems uh, based on farming, based on timing of farming, the availability to sell grain, et cetera. Right. And I, I think that I, I didn't understand any of that until I was much older. And did you, so, but, but did you work on the family farm? For I was a while? lucky in, and depends if you ask my, my brothers, you would have got a different answer to, to that. <laughs> but uh, I was late, very late. I was like a throw in. My dad actually was in the air force in the second world war. My dad, not my grandfather. Wow. Um, also my grandfather, but my dad. And so. So he was young to get in. Was like, oh, yeah, he was, he was, he went in with a lot of his team, his uh, classmates when they were 17. Right. Um, and where I'm from just south of uh, where we were is the, was the Royal Air Force training center during the war. Yeah. And so they basically took all of them uh, into the Air Force and most of them didn't come back wow. uh, at the time, but he did. And uh, so What's interesting there, I mean, there's lots of things there, like there's a lot of stories there, but the, I think the interesting thing is I was a sort of a throw in late. Like I was like 10, 11, 12 years younger than my siblings. Okay. So I was like an accident of some kind. Yeah. And, um, you know, my mom who was born in, in like the mid twenties, right. Jesus. Uh, wow. actually has a university degree from the University of Saskatchewan in chemistry, right. Which is very unusual for that time. Um, right. And then, you know, she went to the U of S, Saskatchewan, my sister as well. And then me and of course my brothers went elsewhere. But um, I guess the point was, in answer to your question, my typical answer is a circle, is that uh, they worked hard uh, manufacturing steel buildings in the blinding sun Yeah, um, where I worked at a golf course. So you could argue that uh, it was a little cushier. They would right. argue that. Right. Well, so the, the how many brothers is the whole family together? Is how big? I had two brothers and uh, a sister. I, yeah. One of my brothers passed away, Sorry and to hear that. Uh, so yeah, that's the the whole crowd right there. And and still very close today. Oh, yep, absolutely. Like it, I was very late to the party, right? And so yeah. So uh, were they I, protective of you? I, probably, but I don't remember <laughs> that. Um, uh, it or they used you to shoot pucks at. Uh, that for sure, my brothers, for sure. But like when they took a long time, that's a long, that's a big gap, right? My brothers and sisters were professionals in their career and I was still a kid. Right. And so, and they were in university. I remember that, but I didn't understand what was happening sort of thing. Like, and so, oh uh, yeah, no, it's right. You know, it took a long time. Maybe when I hit 30, they started treating me like a sibling <laughs> again. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and you were pretty successful by 30. Um, so, okay. So you're, you're, uh, now you're expected to leave and they're pushing you to go and expand and, and look for something else in life. Um, you know, if I remember right, you went to, uh, which university did you pick? Western to begin with? No, or, no, no. Or? Uh, so when I, yeah, I, so just back up a little, like, okay. so I, my, my youth was spent in sports. Right? Well, I know you were a great golfer and a great hockey player. Hockey, Golf competitively, both very seriously, but yeah. also, and you I'm play, not. You went on to professional hockey. Didn't I you? played a little bit of hockey. <laughs> yeah, for, for yeah, that's the whole thing. But yeah, I did spend a little time doing that about eighteen months. Um, but uh, hockey, I love sports. My friends and I, that's what we did. Um, not only those sports, like I also like because it's a small town, right? You get an opportunity to do more things than you might in a big city, right? Or you need to specialize earlier, right? Like, so you know, I played. I played basketball as a guard. Like I'm like like five foot eight, right? Like I, I 
That's not happening in a city. Not very likely. I played uh, 3A volleyball. Wow. Right? I was a captain in grade 10. Could you reach the top team. of the net? I didn't need to. I was a setter. <laughs> and so like, but like, I guess where I'm going with this is that's what I had fun doing. I love doing it. Sports, competitiveness yep. um, with my friends. That is, I had a great uh, growing up. Uh, the people I spent that time with, my best friends are still my best friends. Wow. And so. You don't hear that very often no, either. No, we know, talk about that amongst most ourselves. Most people meet their friends in university. Yeah. And some of us went to university and together, some of us didn't, but um, we all stayed connected. And like, I think during that time, like I really imagined that I was going to get to be a hockey player. My uncle was a yeah. professional hockey player and I wanted to be a professional hockey player. My parents did not want that. Yeah. Like there had been much controversy in our family about uh, her siblings playing hockey. Um, and I look identical to him. Yeah. And so I sort of idolized him and I wanted to be like him. And he always said, you're going to grow that extra three inches. Don't worry. Mm. He was, you know, you he and I wrong. are, you and I are about the same size. Yeah. Yeah. And... I was, he grew late and he yeah. got his extra three inches. Like when I was in playing like midget hockey, I was waiting for that three inches that never came. So junior was a lot harder than you'd think. My yeah, I was the same way. I, I, you know, first year in junior, my mom, most embarrassing time of my life. It, we happened to be playing this team we had played a bit often and everybody dropped the gloves right as soon as the puck dropped so everybody grabbed a partner right next to them and my mother literally walked in front of all the parents around the ice <laughs> into the box right pulled me out and said you're never going to play hockey again yeah. and i never did she she just ended. She said, "I don't like where it's going." <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've had so it's an embarrassing. You can imagine being hauled off the ice by your mother in front of all your buddies. Um, but I, that's a very tough. That's sort of a decision time when you're our size. So I understand that. I was fortunate during that time that you're talking about, and I had similar scenarios to that, like where my parents and my my mom particular said, "I'm not coming anymore." But it was mostly involving me getting knocked senseless, like well, that's open what ice hits. My mother's stuff. fear was as well. Yeah, but uh, I was fortunate that I tore my knee apart um, around that sort of time, and then that took all the optionality away from me at that right. point. And so uh, I was already I was a competitive golfer since I was like seven because my parents were golfers. And so then I really focused many, more on that. How does that happen? Like how many golf courses could they have had in? We only had one. You only needed one. Um, and they gave access to junior golfers. Oh, well, my, my dad was one of the forming members way back and my grandfather as well, where we were. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I played golf as a member since I was, like I said, seven or whatever. And so I got serious about it around 11, 12. So when did you go to, how do you get a hundred in, in math and a hundred in computer sciences when you're playing Hockey to the level that we all know how much travel there is in hockey yeah. at a competitive level, and you're a scratch golfer, which means you probably have to play every day. Um, yeah, I played a lot. So, <laughs> how do lot. you fit it all in? Hockey, high school for me, and to be clear, like math, right? Like, was easy for me. So, high school math. Uh, so, you're a savant, basically. I like math. I don't know, but like geometry, math, you know, trigonometry, whatever, that was all just easy to me. University is different. Right? University, I had to learn new skills once I got there. But like for me, the amount of time I had to spend in high school on math was low. And I often just get me and my some some of the people would just get sent to school shoot baskets because the work we were done, it was just pointless. Yeah. But I had very good teachers who gave us things to do and gave us homework and things like that that we could try. But I, I actually I didn't do homework until I got to university. And that was a real problem because you had to learn to study all of a sudden. Right. Uh, yeah, it is hard when you're It is hard, there. right? So I really wanted to go play golf in university. So that's where I'd focused. Uh, when Did you I go play somewhere? Um, I had a chance to go. 
um, play NCAA, but then my parents were really against it. And so uh, I ended up getting a Saskatchewan Golf Association scholarship, which is funny because you're supposed to use it additively to your, and then I went to the University of Saskatchewan, which doesn't have a golf team, because <laughs> uh, that's what my parents wanted uh, and wanted me to focus on academics. Right. Uh, we're not directive about what, um, but it really, you know, I didn't have a lot of independent money or anything. If I wanted to go to university, I was, my dad's uh, It must have been difficult for hardworking farmers to imagine somebody playing golf for their life. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. And, um, over the years I had sponsors and things like that who wanted me to try to play professional and said, oh, here's some money. Would wow. you do that? But, uh, it was really just not an acceptable path in my family. It wasn't really like, I think differently about this now, okay. um, because I've, well, it, there's a story to this. Cause I ended up playing golf at university a different way. Okay. Uh, I want to like, hear that story. Yeah. So fast forward and we'll come back. Right. Like, fast okay. forward, um, years and years later, when I came out to Waterloo, when I first came to Ontario, um, in, I guess, 1989, um, I'd never been here, obviously I'm from the West and you know, there's lots of bad words about the East out there at times, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, farther East, especially, but here yes. too. And, uh, yeah. so it was, but my dad and I drove from Saskatchewan, uh, to here and to Waterloo and, uh, went into town there and trying to find a place to live and get focused on computer science, get focused on much different kind no, of and it must have, Your dad must've felt comfortable in Waterloo at the time, in that farming community. Uh, we, we didn't really know. In fact, when we came, we didn't know much about Waterloo. We drove around, checked out Alora and checked out St. Jacob's and Elmira and it's all very familiar, also completely different because we don't grow corn in Saskatchewan really. Right. And so the economics are really different. We spent time, we'd pull into farmyards and my dad would ask questions like, <laughs> how are you doing this? Cause you have these teeny little farms, right. like, you know, it's a little different out West. And sure. so, but what happened though, just to this point is, you know, I came to the university and, um, I don't know, went to go play rec sports or something like that. I don't know. And there was a sign that said, you know, walk on golf team tryouts. And I'm like, seriously, there's a golf team here who would knew, right? So then I, I, I did go through the whole process and did really well. Uh, I'd been playing competitive golf in an amateur level, but I decided this was sort of over, right? Transition to your life. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, well, it'd be fun to play some golf, like golf team guys, meet some people. Yeah. And ended up meeting the coach and meeting people and trying out. They already had their golf team, of course. They don't really do walk-ons. Not really. They just say they do, right? Right. But they had a problem because I did pretty well. <laughs> and I actually got put on the second team because they just couldn't figure it out. I was sort of mad because I did well. For the um, listeners, I'm going to prepare them that that's going to become a theme in this conversation probably. about about you uh, doing things that you weren't really expected or wanted or yeah. people wanted you to Weirdly do. Weirdly obsessive, uh, is that yeah. probably right? But I got really obsessed by it because it was fun. I enjoyed it. I got a chance to go and I'm in grad school. It's hard, but you need a break. I played some, a lot of hockey in grad school too. and and But uh, so that was fun, but I didn't get onto the main golf team and that became a problem for me because I was mad about it. I certainly did the next year and then I was the captain every year I played after that. Wow. So I solved that problem. Yeah, we'll get into that obsessive thing a little later here, but. Uh, yeah, but I, it was really formative to my life and that's why one of the reasons my, my kids, uh, my younger kids especially, who yeah. are really passionate about sports. Informative in, a, in what way? Sports? No, well, just the golf, because that's what we're talking about, but sports in general. Why was it so important? Because a lot of our guests have a, a background in team sports, which uh, there's obviously a theme there. Yeah, golf's an interesting one because it's both team and individual. So yeah. it's a very interesting one. But like, I really do believe in team sports. I've been a huge advocate for it since ever. I I, I, I guess I became an adult or whatever that is. Um, because a good example, when if you're playing hockey and you play in a small place like I did, you can be good. 
And then you try to play in a bigger place, and then you're different. Right. And so do you want us to keep playing? You can't be the same. I mean, if you're Connor McDavid, you can do your thing the whole time, right? right? But if you're a normal human being- You can be from Nova Scotia or anywhere. Yeah, you need to find your way. And so like, I learned about roles very early, right? Like, okay, you want to play hockey here? Well, maybe you can. That means you're going to have to work harder. Maybe you aren't going to score 70 goals. Maybe you're going to do something different. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're going to be the person who comes in and finds the puck and gets it to the guy who scores 70 goals. And so maybe you want to be the kid scoring 70, but reality comes- and so are you still in or are you yeah. not in? Now, do you use those analogies at all? Like all when you're talking to potential team members about? Yeah. My favorite talk, I think my most well-received talk in 13 years at Google is all you need to know about management is coaching 10-year-old girls hockey. <laughs> well, that's probably true. And so tell us about that story then. Like, yeah, it's, That's it's a just, good one. Well, I, I'm fortunate to have three girls. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all very different. And one, one quite a bit older, who's uh, actually just finishing her archaeology degree at University of Saskatchewan. So she's a multi-generational. <laughs> but they've uh, got lots of uh, fossils out there. Yeah, and... Yeah, well, and lots of, and she's, and yeah, so she she uh, studies culture, right? So she's been involved in some really a excellent digs recently around things like uh, Atosh, you know, where our yeah, valley yeah. was and things like that, Fort Carlton. But um, anyway, the others are extremely athletic. And, you know, they... I, we moved here, they, they became very athletic. We, we got into hockey early, one's a gymnast, also a hockey player. Um, and you know, my dad, when we grew up, it was a lot of things were non-optional when we grew up. <laughs> there was not a lot of children decision-making, as I recall. <laughs> like you had a very narrow window of options. Like you are eating your dinner, there's no discussion about what you're eating. This is not a thing. Although in the backdrop, of we want you to go and and become and explore your life elsewhere. You right. Like, so that's the underpinning. You're right. You're totally right. But like things like I'll give you examples. So like when I was in high school, um, my brothers and I were the same, and my sister too. I was like, you need to pick your sport. You have to declare your first sport at the dinner table. Wow. And after you've said it, there's no going back. You get <laughs> cut three times, and you're on the twelfth team or whatever. You're not. There's no quitting. Ever. Okay. That's, in that's our family. There's no too. quitting. Like, and then the good news was if your grades were good, you could pick a second sport. Okay. And if things were going fine, you could pick another one or another activity. Yeah. And after that, the things started cutting early, <laughs> but never the first commitment. You had to meet that commitment always. That's incredible. That's so, a very unique parenting approach. I, I, it doesn't work now. I've attempted that. That does not. not you got to have three drivers and four four cars and uh, it's just different. Yeah. But that's what in a small town and that's how we, we grew up. And so you have lots of optionality as they say, but at the same time, you know, you, you needed to follow through on your commitments and where I grew up, you knew everyone. Yeah. Right. And so, and I, I didn't realize these rules until later in life, but it was like a handshake business deal is a business deal. There is no going back. You live there. You aren't going anywhere. Like, so my dad had a tremendous amount of trust with his customers or the farmers to try to have amount of trust for him because, you know, it's winter out there a lot. <laughs> You're heating your house with fuel and we sell it. You probably want the fuel to come. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of a joint understanding about how life works. And it can be different. Like you could be getting paid in chickens. We certainly did sometimes. Um, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's trust that's built and this is an important part in, in business. So. You know, the, 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 you're, you're talking, you know, there are words coming out of your mouth that, that came out of Blake's mouth when, when we talked uh, and a uh, couple of other of our, of our interviewees. Um, 
you know, and that is you follow up on your commitment. Like, wow, you don't hear a lot about that these days, uh, you know, in, in younger executives coming up. And, uh, and also, you know, this word is your bond and building trust, you know, and you know that uh, uh, people can depend on your word. I mean, those are things that I think are slowly getting lost in our leadership. And it's, uh, I don't think it's anything purposeful. There is any method, any madness there. I just think that there's an immediacy through social media and, and being public and often, you know, where you're going quarter to quarter that demands some of these uh, things. But uh, I interrupted you a little bit when you started with your kids. And I think they're so important to your story. I want to take you back there and let you start on that again. Right. So kids, I, I like having kids. So yes, the it's been quite an experience. It's it's a different thing. I'm 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 fortunate that I have an astoundingly amazing wife. Um so yeah, I mean I, I you come to things in a relationship or company, right? You come with what you think and you come with what you know and you try to apply these skills as we all do. But uh, I mean I tried to bring a lot of you know, what I valued when I was in a small town. Mm-hmm. And there was a time as, as we were sort of getting into the, uh, we were getting into the family phase of, of, of our relationship, which was, well, we both came from small towns. You know, she's from a small town in, in Northern California. I'm from, I'm from where I'm from. And there's a stunning amount of similarity actually in, in the culture and how we grew up. I make fun of her. She makes fun of me, banjos or whatever. But like, you know, like, um, like when we met, this is on topic, okay? When we met, one of the first things that my friends and I have always done with our potential spouses is have them come home and we all get together. Bit of a vetting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that'd be an interesting thing yeah. to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, so she first came in June, which one thing is Saskatchewan in June, anybody can go to Saskatchewan in June. But then we had her come in February because that's, you know, a little different. And uh, what we did when she came, we went traveling from Northern California to Saskatchewan in February. And I like to go, I like to go home a lot to Calgary. So I got to go watch the midget tournaments, like the max midget tournament, things like that. In Saskatchewan, watch the provincial championships. Yeah. So we're back and we get home, see my parents have dinner. And I go, okay, let's go. She goes, where are we going? We're going to Tisdale. She goes, where's Tisdale? I go, well, it's just 15 <laughs> kilometers, but we're going, what are we doing there? We're going to watch hockey. She goes, we've just been traveling for like 10 hours. We're going to watch a hockey game. I go, yeah. Yeah. Or I hadn't been home for like 10 years. And we go back there and I know, I don't know, 15 people come over and talk to me in a different town about hockey. And she's yeah. like, you know all these people? And I go, of course I know all these people. Like, Who are these? Well, these are the guys are the coach on the junior team now because I grew up with these guys. And so she had a great time, enjoyed it, right? So that that understanding between us where I'm going with this and where we have our cottage up in Northern Saskatchewan at a, at a village, like is where I grew up too when I was a kid. And so like we like this dynamic, small town, you know, and we almost... We thought a lot about this. Like I was planning to move to Banff because my brother lived there. Yeah. We were planning then. We decided to go there and check the school. Yeah. We were going to go to school there. We look at schools. We look at property. We were going to retire there, find a new career kind of thing and bring our kids up at a smaller place Mm -hmm. where they could be outdoors, ski, hike, and have that environment. And then I ended up getting derailed by Google. But we still try to bring both these things into our, our lives. So our now, kids. Did she have a family? I know she's from Northern California. It's, it, it's probably a culture much similar to the Calgary, you know, Banff in terms of the outdoor sports and things, but yep. did she have that in her family or? She did personally, like she was athletic and, and did those kind of outdoorsy things. And that was sort of basis, a lot, part of the basis of us getting together. But 
it's a different, you know, culture for sure, but definitely yeah. small town, same kind of relationships. Yeah. So I just I'm curious that yeah, the like minded thinking about raising kids. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what happened with the girls because uh, I know that you they led you down a complete path that has probably eaten up half your life. Yeah, it's been a thing, right? Like because it is different now. It is just different, right? And so we got both kids uh, pretty. Ath we wanted to pick, uh, you know, guide them when they were early. It wasn't really there was it wasn't a matter of being optionality. It's like you are playing hockey. You're learning to skate when you're two. That's what's happening. Right. Like you know, two, not four. Right. Like they were both pretty good skaters at three, and so like, okay, now you're doing that. And then we're going into hockey, right? You're going to start playing hockey. You're going and we agonized about it, but they started with girls, not boys. And then because of the again the t not because of skill, because of team, right? Like right. you want to have the camaraderie, you want to be aligned, you don't want to be like the way they used to do girls with boys is they'd be in different dressing rooms and things like that. So we're like, okay, we're right. going to do this and then you're going to go to school and then we'll see what happens. Right. Again, similar motivations. We talked about this a lot, yeah. but we wanted them to be team athletes uh, as well as great uh, students. Right. Um, and that was a balance we thought was really important. Um, this over time becomes actually, uh, and everybody knows this in, in, who has kids in Canada play hockey, it becomes hugely amount of time and energy. It becomes unbelievable, particularly if you try to go down the rep hockey road, which we did. Right. And so my 15-year-old uh, plays U18 AA, which is the same as tier one boys AAA. Yeah. And uh, like by the end of a long weekend, right? So, okay, well, in the first, between the long weekend and the second week in February, they'd played uh, 16 games in 21 days in two countries. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot of effort and time. And to right. stay at that level requires an unbelievable skill level commitment. Skating, shooting, skills, way in addition to the, you know, we have, uh, I guess they have, I think, 65 some games this year. They'll play yeah. uh, 116 practices. Um, and you yeah. brought in some professional coaching for them too. Right? They all have professional coaching. And right. yes, so along the way I went from coach, I coached for like six years, uh, and with my friends we'd coach. Um, and then I didn't, I, I thought I could help add more value at the association level because there's, there's some really great hockey coaches, professional players and stuff like that. So right. you can pull them in team building organization support that we have a great leader and our president of our association. So felt I could contribute uh, at the rap hockey director level. Right. And so I started doing that, uh, trying to help pull in some professional expertise from, uh, people in the professional women's hockey world who, you know, right. historically very successful to help, um, start to align interests, right? This is really hard because the people who are doing training, like goaltender training, this is a tough business for them to run. Like, you know, think of it like our, 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 right. right? Trying to set up their brands. So I spent a lot of time with them. Um, we have a lot in common. It was like, okay, well, how do you make money? Like, how can I be part of that in my association? How can we get more of you and still meet your goals? Finding those partnerships. Yeah. So formed that and tried to create a better program, understanding what parents want and the kids want, which is hard to tell until they get a little older, which who's, who wants what, but you know, the development focus on getting to university, focus on getting to both the academic and, uh, NCAA kind of level hockey and try to give them the tools to do that. Um, and so we were, you know, I love that this, cause when we started our, you know, in our, and there was a lot of fights cause the association was formed in a different way. Like hockey is fun. Let's all have fun. Well, hockey is fun. So is winning. Yeah. So is competing at a high level. And so I helped 
change that. And not everybody wanted this, believe me. But right. uh, last year, our, our program was the number one ranked hockey program in the country. Incredible. Yeah. And we, against, yeah. and just, to, you know, we, we think, we take, it's yeah. like the Saskatchewan, Ontario thing. Now it's like Waterloo, Toronto, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's like, you know, and North York is an amazing program. So I think, Toco. you know, Steve, this is the thing, this is a point in the, in our discussion where I think it's great to just give some perspective for our listeners, because, you know, leadership isn't about titles. You know, it's really about creating and building. And here you are from this very, very small place in a dairy farm in, in uh, wheat Sus farm, wheat <laughs> farm. There you <laughs> go. Uh, in Saskatchewan. And, you know, you end up in Southern and Northern California, you know, creating some of the most leading edge technology at the time. I think you were the first voice platform at the time. Yeah, you? me and my partners wrote the first voice portal patent. That's right. Now owned by Microsoft, but yeah. Right, and uh, which is incredible. And, and then even in your personal life, when you were organizing your daughters, you actually go out and lead the development of the whole, basically the structure of what is today the national program for girls in many ways. Well, the national program is run by a, an organization which is provincial-wide in Ontario. Um, and certainly we don't run that. Right. Uh, we run under their auspices. Um, but we, you know, we and, and the people that run our organization, of which I'm a director, right. uh, have worked together to, to you, create a better turned, program. You know, together, you turned yeah. a what was just a bunch of parents trying to do the best they could to get, uh, you know, uh, the girls an equal opportunity to play the kind of level of hockey that, that, that boys got to play. And you, you created a whole new set of expectations and, and, uh, and skill to draw from and that took it to a whole new level. And that's, that's hugely impressive. And then you do so well and you'd get chased down by Google for years and years for what I understand. They finally break you and you, uh, you come back to Canada and you're one of the first handful of people here. I don't know if anybody knows that, but you are, you're not only responsible for growing Google in Canada, but you are just a couple of rungs away from the CEO of Google. And one of the key guiders of where Google's going technologically. And um, and I thought it might be really interesting for the listeners to hear about a couple of, you know, the, your major accomplishments at Google because they are impressive. Well, Google Google was a surprise in a way. We certainly didn't anticipate it. I, uh, my company in I didn't think they could pay you enough. Well, they, they can pay you enough. <laughs> uh, they can. That is not their problem. Um, is... You know, because my company, as you mentioned originally, my Silicon Valley, my first company. Quack.com or Canidos? Which Quack one? Quack.com. Okay. Uh, we moved there from Pittsburgh. We we're at Carnegie Mellon. And, uh, you know, this is the bridge, right? So we, our company was acquired by a very large internet company, which was Netscape, then A America Online. Yeah, and you spent some time in the leadership group yep. there, didn't you? Yep. yep. I, was, I, was for, uh, I was a vice president there for a couple years, two and a half years, I guess. Um, and this is right after Mark Anderson left, and <laughs> I worked for his replacement and stuff like But it was... Uh, it's a challenging time, uh, but it's a really big, various accomplished company. Um, and you have to learn a whole lot of horrible executive level nonsense that I hate. 
Uh, so it's not, a, it was not, it was, it was certainly, I learned a lot. Like I didn't enjoy yeah. it, but like, so my, my point there though, is I had a, my, my net experience from that was I will never work for a large internet company again, bullet. <laughs> yeah. Right. Until. Ever. Yeah. And when they called me, well, Tom, I tell the recruiters from Google, the same thing. Like I will not work for a large internet company. Yeah. I won't do it. Uh, I remember having that conversation. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> trying to convince you. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, what happened though, is you start talking to people and I, I started meeting people like who were some of the early people at Google, uh, the people that built the company and I ended up reporting to them eventually. But like, I, they're like, we are not a large internet company. And we're like, you look, we look like an large internet company. But at the time there were only only 5,000 employees, right? So it was big, but not gargantuan. Right. And uh, it did not operate in any way like a large internet company. It operated like an amalgamation of technical founders who wow. just made decisions together as long as your decision aligned with Larry Page. <laughs> um, and, uh, it was it was a very different entity when I joined it. It was exciting ultimately, and they convinced me it was not a large internet company. It was just a group of people with a lot of resources, and uh, that's why I did it. And then I still said no, but the thing that finally got me to say yes, and and we, because my wife and I make decisions together, right, was that we could come back to Canada and have our kids grow up here. And this was already in our mind, and we realized that I asked Google a lot of questions. Like I asked a lot of people questions, like, why would you want to go to Canada? What are you interested in, Canada? What's good? I already know what I think, but I asked them. And what's really neat about it is the people there already thought what I thought. Like, they're not stupid. They thought about it. They talked to people. Mm -hmm. And they had bought a small company in Waterloo, actually, with several of my friends already in it. So I already knew who they were. And uh, they're like, we want to do something really big and formative in Canada, in Waterloo specifically. Yep. And we want you to lead this. And this was compelling to me because that's a reason to come back to Canada that I care about, which is Canadian tech. It's a reason to come back to a place that I really like, the Wadley region I really like. Mm -hmm. It has that small town vibe, even though it's a little bigger than that, and has a tech center, which For is sure. important. And so it seemed like a really good opportunity, despite the winter part. Um, and uh, yeah, that's why I came and back. And you built a beautiful place there too, a beautiful Yeah, we built a great, a great life there too. And uh, so coming back, for me, they already acquired a company. Google had acquired a company called Rec Wireless that was acquired in 2005. I was being recruited in 2007. And uh, I came out to talk to them, to meet them, and they're they very, 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 very clever people. Uh, some of whom I knew, some I did not. Um, and but I had connections. You know, I know who these people yeah. were through my network. And so it was like, yeah, this is going to be really interesting. And and I was given a number of, uh, I was given a huge amount of latitude by Google. Like I'm like, what are you planning to do? What do you want to do? Well, you'll decide. You'll tell us. You'll tell us how much it costs, and we'll see where we go. But <laughs> if we like it, we'll do it. Which is terrifying, but still an opportunity. Exciting for someone like you. I it's think. an opportunity for someone yeah. like me, especially if you're tired of raising money. Yes. Right? I was super tired of raising money in the Valley. And so it was like, and like like Larry said, like, hey, it's five minutes. You need a billion dollars? It's five minutes. I mean, you got to be right. But, you know, certainly by the end, I was spending that kind of money every year for sure. But like, yeah. um, but you get the point. And so, yes. so the question became, and you asked the question was, what did we do? We did... I came and I asked, well, what are we working on? Like, what are, what did, why did we buy this company? Then I asked the people, why, what are you working on? What are we doing? And like, I, I sort of, it's sort of simple in a way. I came and we could have done anything, but we, they bought a company that was really good at mobile application development and search for mobile <laughs> at a time when there was neither mm -hmm. at all, really, right? And I'd built a mobile company obviously before. Right. And um, they, they were working on uh, machine learning for ads targeting. And those are the two major things they're working on. 
And wow. then we had a PhD from MIT there working on the AI stuff, who I really liked. Um, and they had some technical leaders on the other side who knew what they were doing as well. I'm like, Google's like, what do you think we should be doing? I go, I got an idea. Why don't we do mobile development and search and ads targeting with AI? <laughs> and they're like, but that's what they're doing. I go, I know, but what could be more important than that to Google? Consumer uh, trends, everything going that way early on. Let's just double down on that, triple down on that, 10 times down on that. Right. And let's just really push on how to make publishers and content delivery more money. And how hard was that to convince them? Well, there was no convincing in this case because those were my decisions to make. Great. And so right. we just did that. And, and you, you know, just these, trusted. Bet on the people, bet on the teams, get involved in the product strategy, augment the teams, bring in better product leadership over time, more senior people. But really, and this is the big thing, that nobody was pushing us to hurry. So what we did is we just hired the best possible engineering talent we could. Yeah. And from that engineering talent, we identified leaders. And from those leaders, we made managers. And yeah. over time, we just built up what I still consider to be the best engineering team ever built in Canada. And, and, just, and, and so easy. Steve, we've had this conversation a lot because of what I do and 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 knowing that that you're the, the best judge of technical talent I know. Um, what does define a great tech leader for you? What, what's the, what separates the men from the boys or, the, or from the women from the girls, you yeah. know? Yeah, so it's a really, really interesting question because as we were already talking about, like teams that are successful have different roles. Right. And have a variety of talents and a variety of perspectives, a variety of genders, a variety of Absolutely. history. And so, you know, when we came to Google originally, it was sort of like being a candy store, literally, because like, okay, I'm gonna hire the best engineers. What does that mean? And Google had a very specific way at the time of hiring from a recruiting interview point of view, seven engineering interviews, uh, like two or three coding interviews, uh, two or three algorithms interviews, a systems design style interview, very wow. intense. And like, in, in, and, and I mean, intense in every way. The questions are hard. The expectations for the answers are very high. Um, you're doing this standing at a whiteboard. You're writing code standing at a whiteboard, which is a very unnatural act for a software developer. Right. Um, but it helps the interviewer see your thought process. Right. Like it's not so much about the answer, although the answer matters. It's how are you going? It's like doing a math problem. How right. It's how that, absolutely. And then a lot of variation questions like, oh, great. That's a great answer for a quick answer. What's a better answer? How do you make that 15 times faster? And then people stare at their own answer and where do they go? And so you end up hiring. I wish really I had that kind of brain. Right. And so you end up hiring these really smart analytic people. Um, and over time, we hired a lot of people like that. Okay. And then in that crowd, you start looking for other skills, the softer skills. I don't want to, that's the wrong word. The, the, the connectivity skills. Right. And some of my peers, I had this conversation just recently with another Google leader when I was asking him a similar question. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like this, okay, you have an engineer who's really good and you've given them a bunch of work and they're just all over it. Fine. Right. Lots of people are like that. And the question is, do they go outside of their playground a little bit. Like, why are the requirements around you the way they are? Do you start asking questions? Do you start going to the other leads and saying, hey, this is sort of dumb. Why are we doing it this way? And then listening right. and saying, well, have we thought of trying this other thing? And start looking for the senior people and saying, well, why are we doing it this way? Couldn't we do it a different way? And right, so right. that skill set, which I'm not really sure how to define over time, we called something called, that I use the term technical driver. I don't know if it's the right word, but it's somebody who's not content with seeing the things around them uh, in their opinion, being broken. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting curiosity. Uh, you curiosity, and I had that talk 
one night uh, where we talked about a, a much simpler company from a technological perspective in Assurian, you know, that was started by a young Canadian from PEI, uh, do about 15 billion in revenue today. Um, uh, great success story, but another humble Canadian. Um, the strategy was for us early on building with that was let's get a phenomenal first hire, like just a CIO that that from that would fit our industry, but that but people would take notice of. And then from there, we used that person to recruit away a woman to run services from a world class organization. So we what we did is we got everybody in the company became addicted to working with great people. And so they were trying to find great people. They were trying to yep. network with great people. And we found that actually it money didn't matter. It, it was really what attracted the best people was just the ability to go to work every day with people as good or better than they are and to watch the amazing results that come out of it. And that's very similar to what you're describing. It, yeah, I don't understand people who who don't do that. I, I actually fundamentally don't. I, it's not an yeah. argument or anything. No, I, I know. It, do it, not it's understand. frustrating for me as well. And I, for me, like I have a certain set of skills over the years. I've changed how I feel about them. It's one thing to work in your own startup and have a view that you know something about products. It's another thing to build software when you're young and think you're really good at it. Right. And then it's another thing to work at Google. And there's a saying at Google, which is like, you know, uh, how do you put it? Like, never say you're an expert. Right. And it's not a mean thing. It's no. like, oh, you're an expert. Oh, that's fantastic. We are, oh, look, we love experts. And yeah, you know, there's this example, <laughs> like the, there's a, a guy named Richie who invented the uh, programming language. It's very famous. doesn't matter. But like people would come and say, hey, I'm an expert at this programming language. And people go, this is amazing. And then we would have him interview. Not to be mean, but because, oh, you say you're an expert, but we'll give you an expert. And you guys can have a great conversation and see what happens. Just to educate them on where the bar yeah, you're an expert. Fantastic. We have an expert. And, you know, we that's accumulated, right. that's what Google did. Google accumulated experts. But, you know, back to the kids, right? Like, so. Absolutely. I think, I really have fundamental angst over this now. Like, it's too late now. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not doing it again. But like, you know, my kids are in the sport that we got, they, they're getting, I believe, what they should from this. But the overall focus required to play high level sport at any level now because right. of this huge, huge developmental focus that you end up with Economic David yes. is true across the, the board, right? It's true in volleyball and a, a partner of mine played college volleyball and it's true in golf and a partner of mine is one of the best golfers in the, in, in the country. And then it's true in, in youth girls sports right. where they all want to go to college and they all want to go to NCAA. And quite honestly, most of them can if they want to. Yeah. And so it's like to get to that level though, you're constantly removing things. Like yeah. I valued the diversity of experiences yeah. I had. I got to all those things. Like it's ridiculous, right? Because I wasn't the best at any of them, but I got to all of them. Yeah. Whereas now, okay, like my my uh, my daughter who's fifteen, you know, she would like to play field hockey at school because her friends do. She, she really, there's just no way. She's a good runner and she liked to do track. She's there's just it's just not possible. Right. Because of the travel, because of the practice level command, because of the extra things. Right. You need to do to stay there. Like you need to do your power skating. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know that. And then you're like, she's like, well, I know, but I want to do this. And we're like, well, we can't do both. Like you could step back a level in hockey. Right. 
right. and just play hockey Which and have a great time. No interest in. Not now, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're at a point now where it just becomes very hard. And my other daughter is a, a very, very competitive gymnast and also wants to play hockey. And we're like, no, you got to order these things, right? And everybody goes through this. I know that <laughs> yeah. all parents do this, but you know, I feel like none of these things really met the goals that I had, which were be a member of a team. You know, she, no, don't get me wrong. She has had to change and fit into a team and she has in many, many ways. That's why she's still there. Uh, to be that good, you have to do that. But, and those are valuable skills and the commitment to your point earlier, you you are, you know, you said you're doing this, you're doing it. There is no backing out on a team. Right. You're in. There's nothing, you know, you're, everybody has bad days, but. Right. So those are all great commitment things, great lessons we use our kids. But I don't think it's the same as growing up in a farming town. It's just not the yeah. same. So. You know, it, it is remarkable to me to, like, I think you must have actually learned how to clone while you were at uh, Google because I don't know how one person does all the things you've done. And we'll go back and if we have time in a little bit to tell the listeners, or we'll have you on again to tell you a little bit more about uh, to uh, uh to Canidos and some of your earlier extensions, but I wanted to get your opinion on something um, that I think we're, we're dancing all around. And that is, you know, nobody, nobody trusts the leadership in, in media anymore right. and nobody trusts politicians anymore. And, and the, the, the problem with the dichotomy is that, is that we are shrinking our talent pool of potential leaders because it is a scary thing to get into, uh, they they are they have to strike out of the specialty that they're in, and some companies just actually don't want to do that. They don't want to lose that specialty expert. So you know, by giving them other things to do, and we can talk about how people break into CEO ranks, but more and more so is that with the ranks dwindling, more and more people are actually looking to our our business leaders for opinions on things right. now, more so than ever before, if you see the polls. And and so that that can be daunting to some. Um, how do you feel about the role of the CEO? And and is do you like the fact that people are looking more to these leaders or, do you, or does it worry you? This is interesting. I mean, let's talk about trust first. So um, my entire life is based on trust, like honest to God, like everything. And so because if you're attracting people and you want to attract people, you need to trust them, they need to trust you. And if you're going to do something risky, you really are jumping off together wherever you're jumping. Right. right. And so um, as I've tried to bring people together and and find a way to build these teams of these amazing high-performing people that I just have enormous respect for, and, and try to you know present yourself somehow as a leader, or I see it more as a a, a, a band leader or something. We're going this way, um, right. and so is that everybody has to trust one another. And there's lots of ways we can. And I like talking about these kind of things about how you establish that trust, how you maintain it, how you grow teams, how you grow organizations with trust. Mm-hmm. There's a word that we've tried to use some of the, me and some of my friends called transitive trust, which is really hard. Yeah, like and trying to set people up as these intermediaries of trust who are obviously trusted and helps them for a while and, and Google did this exceptionally well, not just in my teams, but other teams too. But um, certainly I tried my own approach to this. So um, when I came from California, uh, I had a team at one point, I guess of my own team that got pretty big, but of the people I originally hired uh, into my own startup, there was probably 10, 12 who were 
like really core people that we had developed that sort of trust the hard way mm -hmm. through hell right. and successes, but also hell right. and, and in various orders. And uh, uh, 10 of them came back and then eventually 14 from California to come back to work for us at Google in Canada. Right. And I guess this is a statement around trust, right? It's like, here's the things that you would be able to do. Here's how we will do this together. Here, if things go slanty, here's what's going to happen, <laughs> right? And um, that was great. And most of those people are still uh, at Google. But like, I think in that context, those steps are based on trust, right? And so now over time, again, now add 13, 14 years of building, you know, Gmail or whatever, or huge products that yeah. we all did together, is that um, these people are now amazing leaders in their own right. Like, and they were before, but at a different kind of scale, yeah, right? Just and been so, given the chance to take yeah, on more. people ask me all the time, like, who is the best X in the country? And I point to one of them and I go, I don't know who the others are, but you aren't going to go too far wrong with this woman right. who is probably the best engineering lead I've ever met right. and who, you know, if you ever got her, your life's going to be really good, <laughs> but yeah. you just aren't because your story is not good enough and she doesn't know you. Right. Um, but you talk to her because that's what you want. Right. You, you want someone, I don't know how the hell you're going to find someone like that, but that's the person you want, right? Someone yeah. like that. And so those people I have enormous respect for in their domain and across people and human issues, management, uh, failures they've had to deal with, with, with me and others at representing a very large American corporation in Canada and trying to do that in a way that is, if not delicate, at least careful. Right. Um, because with that kind of resources, you can cause damage. And lots of people have been very critical of us over the years, but we tried very hard to not do that and try to be an additive force for overall tech and overall product and overall leadership and lots of things like right. helping. We put huge amount of time and energy into STEM education in Canada, not just with money, but also with time and energy. Tried to address the problem that that young women leave computer science and tech and engineering in the seventh grade and why. And we tried to spend time trying to address that problem and work with the universities to change their intake mechanisms so they didn't just pick people who had 100% in high school math, but instead started picking people who were broad right. and maybe had an interview before they got hired. Like, oh, you... Oh, now that's why you only have 95 in math is because you're a concert violinist. Yeah. That's really not a reason not to pick somebody, right? Like, we're like, right. please stop doing that. And they have. And and what's changed with that, of course, is the intake mechanism and this, you know, in partnership with them, they've gone from like 15, 13, 15% female entry to, you know, 35. And all of a sudden you have a diverse workforce. So all I'm going with that is like the people behind who might, people might think of them as just engineering leaders are actually community leaders. Like I'm one. Like mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in it and we've talked about hockey and there's other things I've done too, but like they are as well in their own dimension. And, yeah. You're on the board of Waterloo as well, aren't you? Uh, I was, I, I've tried to limit a lot of my board, board work because of my current right. demanding job, but uh, uh, I was on the board of CUNYTECH for a very long time, helping other tech companies. Right. And I am on uh, Great Quantum Valley Ideas Lab board with Michael Azaridis. Right. Um, but because I have such great respect for him in that organization. Which is, those organizations for our listeners are tech innovation leaders and right. and really are responsible for creating some of the greatest opportunities in Canada and uh, like organizations like Mars. Absolutely. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's impressive that that's where you'd pick and probably natural for you to pick given what you enjoy. But uh, they convinced me it was worth time right and and but yeah. but back to the trust and the leadership around community like i've seen these people grow i've seen them become part of the community they're not want to leave any of us could have gone all of them could have gone anybody could in our industry you know if you want to make more money 
Right. You want to just have more power. Well, then you don't do it from Waterloo. You go to California. Like, it's not very complicated. Right. Right? Yeah. Maybe you go to New York, but really you don't. You go to California. You right. go to Silicon Valley. Like, right. It, and so if you want to, if you're able to be a person who's a leader in a community, not about me, I'm talking about other people, right? Who are, are community leaders, who are making impact in their schools, or raising their families, and, and are leaders in huge organizations across giant multinational corporations, you're a pretty impressive person, right? Right. And so a lot of people are not interested in becoming CEOs, not because, no. not because they don't, couldn't be, not because they wouldn't be amazing, but because it wouldn't, there's not room in their life for it. Right. Their, their priorities on their family are hot. I'm not saying CEOs can't yeah. do this. Like I, they're scary. You realize, today. Steve, I'm trying to encourage people more uh, to be a CEO. Uh, I think they don't understand. I'm with you, right? <laughs> they don't understand it's possible. And I've met some amazing people in my new role, yes. you know, who are, are, are senior leaders who've been these kind of CEO levels. I have not been in a huge multinational or anything like that. I've been a CEO of my own company, which is terrifying enough, but is that they're scared of it. And, and I don't mean scared in a bad way. They're naturally scared because like, okay, in my first startup, you know, I, my first marriage fell apart during that time. Right. I, you know, all is great now, but like at the time it was figure out the work balance thing. There was no work-life balance, right? In Silicon Valley, there's, there is no work-life balance. There's just, that is a complete myth. And anybody who says it is just. No, I lived it too. You, I, I know. The same I know, problem. <laughs> I know. It just doesn't exist. And so the pressures are, what's the, unidirectional. Yeah. And everything else is sort of failure. No, people carve it out. Like my amazing boss that I had at Google, she's done astounding things for a long time and she would say a different thing. She's yeah. a very, very strong person who knows how to create that boundaries and has the capability to be that, but right. it's not a common thing. And so no one understands that's possible. Everybody's fearful of it. Like I've created this balance where I can make huge impact. I have this great team that depends on me, the trust thing. And 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 I want I want to be there for them. And I make more money than I need, right? They all think that, right? I don't need more money. Right. I have a school relationship. I know my children. I don't have time to spend it. I, I don't want to change that. And like you, and they're like, well, over time, maybe their work is less satisfying as organizations get changed and bigger and whatever, but still they're not looking for the bigger leadership thing. Right. They're looking for impact and value um, and people who are amazing to be with and work with that are fun to spend time with as yeah. well as, you know, and, and above all, they, they value their families. And this is a very hard thing to argue with. It it really is, and it comes down to eventually trusting a handful of people. It's and, you know, yep. and delegating, and uh, and that's uh, trust that goes right back to the trust thing you talk about. Yep, and you know, I agree with you. It's just a great comment. I I had a choice. I've passed on many choices over my time in Canada right. to be a CTO or to be a co-founder of mm -hmm. huge companies that have done very very well. Right, and I knew they'd do very well because I knew the people and I loved the businesses. And I made the decision personally, which is I know the sacrifice that I believe I will have to make. And even though they say, no, 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 we're all about work-life balance. Yeah. I have my uh, bias, which is I don't believe it. Like I think that startups are hard. I think They're extremely companies hard. are hard. And you got to be lucky. You'll be lucky and you have to work hard and the two things have to work together. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't mean just hard. I mean, very hard. Right. And so I think people who are able to do that yeah. and are able to be great leaders and are able to work hard and able to balance their families impress me. 
and I'll say one thing on this, okay? Yeah. If you don't mind. No. Like, I don't want to cut. Is that no, I've met people recently that I did not know existed, right? Because they're in different industries or from a different role in, in like, not technology, but maybe finance or something, right? Yeah. And then you're like, well, how did you do this? Like, how do you have this work-life balance? I don't <laughs> understand. I don't get it. And they're like, well, I'm not as stupid as you. And so we didn't do competitive hockey. Instead, we did family-oriented sports. We still um, have the competitive individual. mantra. We do tennis. We do golf. Skiing. Skiing. We travel to do that. We do work as a family. We do these things together. And, you know, we understand the team thing, so we get that a different way. And you're like, ugh. And that gives them... I'm going to use it again by the VC word of the year is optionality, right? So it gives them these options in their life to, to still do their work yeah. and still do the extra work, but still be with their family. And these are wise people. But optionality is, you know, your interpretation of optionality changes where, depending on where you grew up. I grew up in the West, like you did, right. where, you know, optionality around which sports you were going to play was pretty limited, limited yeah, to yeah, say yeah. the least. Yeah. You know, you played hockey. Yeah, and yeah. And, uh, and that's what you focused on, and yep. and uh, so, but I do. I've tried to convince my kids that options, options, options. Like, don't, don't narrow, get too narrow too quickly. You know, I agree. Um, so, so take me back. Interesting, uh, because you, it, it, we sort of skipped over, and I, I think it's an important. Uh, you know, I always look for those divert places in your life where, you know, a divergence there could have meant something completely different. Hmm. What got you to California? Like why jump down there when you did? Yeah. It's like all good stories. It's not a, it's not a direct one. And uh, my life is these disjointed jumps. Yeah. When I get bored, I do something different. I get bored of something different. I did that for a very long time. Yeah. And that's why I had to play hockey, right? Is after my yeah. master's degree in artificial intelligence, I got bored. And so I said, I, I, I'm still good enough at hockey in a way, maybe, and took that chance just to do it. And yeah. is the divergence, and my parents didn't speak to me for almost two years, but um, I did it because I just wanted to try something else. And then yeah. that gave me the understanding that that was not the path for me. And then so I was able to come back and then focus on my, my yeah. research again. Um, so basically, to your question, like, I ended up in my PhD, finished my PhD, and then your options start right. to be, well, am I an academic? Right. Which those that know me would have said, well, no. Um, but I wasn't sure. Right. And this is long right into my life, right? Like this is this is getting to be, uh, this is getting pretty late. Like I'm t late twenties at this point. Yeah. Like I I've kept these things going. Like I'm playing good thing, good golf thing with you didn't, uh, Yeah, and good thing you didn't grow up in Europe where yeah. you're sort of encouraged to take as many degrees as you can <laughs> yeah that, well and i could have done that in you know i would have kept because, you busy for a long yeah, time but okay so i ended my phd it was like okay i went and i did the academic tour that you do which right. means you go you meet universities you tell them what you want to do and they decide if they want to be so i had some academic offers to be a, a professor right um i mean you, you work hard to get your phd so then you're like okay what's that's that it is a natural path right? right i am not a teacher i might be a certain kind of a leader I'm a fairly demanding teacher. So yes. I said to some of them, I really was really interested in some of these faculties. I was like, look, I will not teach. Of course, for entry-level faculty, you pretty much have to. But I got one offer, which was, okay, you can come in with not teaching tenured. Yeah. And so that was tempting, right? Because you could do research forever. Yeah. Uh, and I would have liked to do AI research forever. I would have been, I think I would have. At the time, I wasn't sure. 
Yeah. And then I had another chance to follow my PhD into a postdoc. And the thing about it, it was in Hawaii. Because the researcher I wanted Rough. to work with was a faculty <laughs> member at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. So did you become a surfing champion? Well, it was optionality. So for me, it was, I can go do that. I can write a book with him. I could do my research a bit more and I could sail and scuba dive. And so that seemed like a good idea. And so I did that, I wow. did that for almost two years. And so at the end of that, I wanted to do something else. And so transitioning from that, out of academia, because I was not going to do research anymore. We talked about doing companies. My, my uh, supervisor at the time, my partner really, a postdoc is not like a supervisor. Postdoc is more of a partnership. Right. So my partner, Alex, and I were like, we had some ideas around companies. We explored them a little bit, but I needed to go do something else. So I went back to Pittsburgh, to Carnegie Mellon University to work for the Software Engineering Institute, which is one of the best software engineering kind of institutes in the world, to work on large-scale architectures mm -hmm. and help help companies do that. So that was good for, for me, but it was it was too big company. And, and so we did it. We, we did lots of interesting things, but then it was like, oh, this isn't going to work for me. Um, did some hockey there too. But like the point was that... I met more people. Right. And we were like, we added a couple of people to our little gang of talk. Right. And we started going and meeting each other in like different cities. Like, let's meet in Chicago. We'll talk right. about this. We'll meet here and talk about this. And so we did that and then found an idea. And then we moved to Silicon Valley around 1999. Um, that's how we ended up in Silicon Valley. Right. We raised money in Pittsburgh. I remember that. That's how we, that's a, basically yeah. when you and I met and we ended yeah. up sitting on an advisory board together. Yeah. Uh, for, yeah. And so that's how we got there. Yeah. So that's a long route and it took a long time to get to Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, you know, once we got there, I mean, if you're a tech entrepreneur, I mean, Silicon Valley is the NHL of that. And right. so you will survive or you will not. Talent is impossible to recruit. Right. Is who am I talking to? Um, and you need to have a story. You need to have leadership. You need to have a path forward. Right. And then we just dragged a couple of hundred Canadians with us. Um, yeah. Excuse me for, and that's how we got there. And so that's a long way to California, but ultimately it was all Canadian for the most part. Yeah. Almost no Americans. But, you know, and this isn't in your bio either because it, it, half of what you told us today isn't in your bio. I think it bio would be, you know, Wikipedia would be having a heyday. Um, but you did get involved with something that's hugely impactful over the last number of years, and that is the formation of the C100. Right. That's Tell me true. a little bit about that. You know, it's hard. It's so long ago. It's unbelievably long. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't even remember who came to first it. to me, talked to me about it. Like, there used to be a thing called the Digital Moose Lounge in Silicon yeah. Valley. I'm I actually very old. remember that. I'm so old. Yeah. And I liked early it. early days. Yeah, I liked it because a bunch of Canadians would get together and go to hockey games. So we'd, we'd go watch Sharks play and then yeah. go out for drinks after and talk tech in the Valley. And that was fun, right? Yeah. And C100 was intended, as I recall. Yeah. Right. To be more intentional around supporting Canadian entrepreneurs from our point of view in the Valley. Right. And, uh, you know, like obviously uh, strength in numbers and, and, and very, very smart people, by the way. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, one smart. of the things like when you were talking about going to California, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, you know, that I went to California is I was like 29 years old when I was recruited from the Cobalt Partners to the U.S. And, the reason I did that is that, you know, in our business at that time, you had to work for 20 years in a lineup of tenured people to get access to working with the people at the top. You know, I got, I, I learned under a tremendous woman, Ann Fawcett at Caldwell Partners, who was a fantastic mentor and uh, amongst others. 
Um, but there was no way I was going to be doing there that I was, if someone called the Caldwell partners to do the CEO of a bank, they were going to give it to me at 30 years of age. Right. So, um, so that's why I went down South because down South, it, they didn't care about how long you had been doing it. All they cared about was results. Mm-hmm. Yep. And totally. so the very first search that I ever got to work on was, was helping our firm put Carly Fiorina and Hewlett Packard, right? <laughs> which at the one. time, you know, she was the first woman to run a Fortune 1000. It was a big deal. And, uh, and that sort of got me launched. So was there any of your thinking that you would just get more opportunity in California? Totally. And, like, and how can we encourage people or help create the environment here where we can create that same environment here? So here's the great news. I think we have. Good. So, That's awesome. So uh, I think we're close. I do too. So like, there's a saying that Canada is 15 years behind the United States in venture capital. Well, that's fine now. Right. right? Like 15 years back there, I think what it was like. So like, I believe that's true. I don't know enough about the history of venture capital, but I trust my partners. And so they think that too. Like, that's why I'm in Novia. Like not, it's not a pitch for Novia. But it's like, that's why I'm here. Right. I believe that when I came back to, you know, contribute to Canadian tech, I mean, admittedly from a point of great luxury at Google and yeah. all the rest of it. Like we did that. Like we have produced thousand plus tremendously right. highly talented engineers and leaders who hopefully go and do their own right. things. But maybe they won't. It doesn't matter. They've been huge community contributors and, and great people. And and their lives are in excellent shape. And so I, I'm very proud of, of that. But now I want to do something different. Right. And I wanted to, again, the different. And this is certainly different. And it's more about finding these companies and, and helping those founders, these leaders you're talking about, yes. get to the next level. And we have significant resources um, on any scale. Like yes. we're not the largest Silicon Valley VCs, but I've seen metrics recently around the firm that Chris and my partners have created Yeah, um, that show that in many degrees, we're among the top 10 tech venture capitalists in the world. Right. Um, and, you know, in, in, in a number of really interesting dimensions, which I don't want to really specifically go into, but like yeah. they are not, they are just excellent for building tech long-term. And so I'm proud to be part of that. Yeah. And we have strong aspirations to build it bigger in Canada. Yeah. And, and, and listen, I, I will, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not here to sell Inovia I No, no. But I, no. I, I tend to think I can choose who I, I like to work with from, from a private equity perspective. And I do choose uh, pretty specifically. And I love firms that actually execute the idea that people are the most important thing because otherwise it makes my dog my job no fun and no fun. and uh, and so you know novia has has believed in and and in fact you have an owning partner that is in charge of people which is not always the case and uh, right, right. shows your you, you know you'll walk the walk yeah and so you're totally right and 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 you know as you meet these people these leaders that you know we we're talking about uh, in these companies and some of the companies we're identifying, yeah, um, look for many things, um, and you—they're certainly driven, they're certainly smart, um, and you know everybody has blind spots. God knows I have blind spots. Yeah, and I think we try to help them with their blind spots and just be better. And we have a 
we have perspectives. Like we're not an we're not a venture firm without opinions. Yeah, you've got a good diverse group there. We, we have opinions, but we support the human beings and try to make and them even more successful. Sounds like you encourage intellectual honesty, which is key. It it is, and and you know, this we are very different, and I love it because. And this isn't less about the company and less than about the people, right? right? We all feel this way. And before I was asked to join as a partner, particularly, like there was many conversations, mostly like this. Right. Why don't we just get together and talk for a while? Like, are you yeah. someone I want to spend the next 10 years with? Right. And because that's our our goals, or at least that. And so, um, yeah. And, and so back to Canada, like, I think we're in a great spot. I honestly do. And um, in tech, I don't have the visibility across other industries so much. Um, I think we're seeing immigration into Canada from amazing diversity of sources from very powerful leaders. And as you know, for interesting reasons that are hard to understand, yep. uh, first and second generation Canadians are often um, the most uh, surprising innovation hubs. I agree 100%. And uh, I think we're, we're in, we've set ourselves up over the last uh, 10 years yeah. where we're going to see this. We're yeah. going to see the Toby Lukies of the future take off. and. Yeah. I'm excited about that. I want to find these people early. Yeah, well, that, I mean, listen, Steve, I could go on for another two hours with you. We, we've done it before, and uh, I really appreciate you opening yourself up. I, I do think that uh, lots of things that have, we've talked about today are going to shine through in, in, in other leaders, even that there are going to be people that are sitting right below the sea level now that have been asking why. And, uh, and they're going to say, you know, you can still be a good person and, and uh, take on these added responsibilities and you can get a lot of reward out of it if you approach it in a certain way. I think they'll have learned a lot today from you. So two final questions. Okay. Um, one is, I mean, what is that one really nugget of advice you'd give to somebody who wants to take on the CEO role? If you could just leave them with one thought. The second being, I'd be negligent not to talk to the one of the best minds in the country about what's happening. You know, what's the next big thing coming in technology? They're both hard. Um, <laughs> so... I mean, I, I have my own view on leadership. Others lead differently. And I think there's strength in, in, in them. And I've heard some of them talk recently and I just could not disagree more. And they're enormously successful. Yeah. So there isn't one way to skin a cat or whatever the analogy. For sure there is. And uh, I don't believe in top-down leadership. Some people do. I do not. I think you're limiting your scope, your capability, and your scale. And I think bringing together people across a range of experiences who are able to work together more effectively as a group allows you to go farther and wider and be more successful. And that um, anyone who thinks they can direct that top down yeah. uh, and thinks they're the next Elon Musk yeah. sadly might be. Wow. I, <laughs> I just then, actually wrote an article that was picked so, up by Market Watch not long ago. I'll send it to you because you could have written it. it was, our minds are so it, in sync on that. Yeah, but uh, you know, others disagree and yeah. they've demonstrated the ability to do certain things a certain way. And it's just yeah. not my idea of a good time or long-term success. So that's one. Yeah. I would say just never, never stop acquiring more people into your circle, convince them to be part of your vision. And by the way, listen to them. Like yeah. one of the things I, if, in my new role, I know exactly nothing about finance. 
Yeah. Like if somebody asks me what kind of a venture capitalist are you, I go, it's easy. I'm a tech entrepreneur. Right. I am not a venture. I, and I may not even decide to become exactly that because I'm not trained that way. Right. And these people that we bring in, I work with, I'm so excited because they know all of this stuff. Right. And I was asked, well, what does that even mean? And it, it takes yeah. them back. Like it sets them back. Like I said, no, I'm literally serious. Like explain this to me because I do not understand and I want to understand. Maybe so we have young guys, uh, we have our friend, Steve, uh, I think we have a common friend in Ian Locke, right. uh, whose son, you know, just graduated with a combination master's in green, in technology right. and he wants to be in green tech, but also oh. an MBA. Okay. Yeah. So Amazing. comes into it um, as a scientist, but with these extra set of understandings, you know, you see value in that? Oh, I do kind of like look at look, look at my partner Karmdeep. Yeah, Karmdeep is a is a computer scientist, mathemat mathematician from the from what grew up for goodness sakes in yeah. Kitchener Waterloo and went to Waterloo and you know basically got derailed when he was younger into venture capital and you see it in every conversation he has. Like I always make fun of him because I think I have nothing but enormous respect for him that he's a failed <laughs> computer scientist and it's too bad. Yeah, of course he's done very well for all kinds of people and himself, but like he would have been an astounding hands-on software developer and leader. But yeah. nonetheless, like yes, his skill set that he's learned a lot of that MBA stuff over the years, like understanding businesses, leadership, what what are the metrics in a company that matter? What are these that he can do it on his head? Just bam! Wow! And I, I go to him all the time. I'm thinking of this. What do you think? There, people don't like it. He's like, oh, they're totally wrong. And here's why. And you're like, okay, make a note. <laughs> like, and so yes, beautiful skill sets. You see it more and more. I will add. To that, yeah, my personal bias, which is, okay, you want to do computer science and you want to do MBA. I mean, more power to you. Go out and build something for a while. Go work okay. in an engineering organization. Go, go yeah. work. At, you don't want to work at Google? Go work at Google anyway. No, in fact, I introduced him to Mars because right. I he, he I thought he'd be great to get into a a green tech startup. And, go and do it, and just do whatever they can allow you to do. If you're a software developer, write a software. If you're a system design engineer, go and design products. Whatever, go and do it. Yeah. And even if you're planning, set your life. And I'm, I'm not the biggest one, as you've already heard about specific time goals. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm out, right? <laughs> but, yeah. but like, go build for five years, three years, make some accomplishments. Don't put it as your whole life, but understand what it means to be in an organization that does this before you start telling people how to run those organizations. Yeah. So I believe that. Back to your other one. That's is that okay. Is like, yeah, so that's the other perfect, question, my friend. We big, can go as long as you want. What's the, now? Yeah, this is the great question. If you're not a venture capitalist, well, it was always my life, right? Like, yeah, my life I has mean, been. You don't have to spill the beans or anything. No, there's no but... beans to spill. Like, okay, I've done two deals since I've been in Obia. Okay. Okay, and they're totally predictable. Just like all of my technology decisions over the years have been completely predictable, except maybe the first one. Yeah. So, uh, okay. We're at a time that everybody says is a collision between availability of data, increasing quality of, of data at scale, enormous scale, right? Um, and uh, novel applications of artificial intelligence technology to make predictions, roughly, like speaking generically. Okay, right. fine. So what's the largest industry producer growth industry in the world right now for data? By a factor of two, it's healthcare. Right. So healthcare data is growing exponentially and not only exponentially in volume, but it's also growing at a very significant rate in quality. So the quality improvement is unbelievable. Right. And you think you can take all kinds of examples, like your Apple Watch, if you want, with its really high grade. I was at a talk at University of Waterloo on, on Saturday morning, and it was pointed out through a bunch of kind of stuff that from a point of view of making predictions about your health, 
the Apple Watch with its current level of, call it consumer-grade uh, sensing around your heart rate and your blood pressure um, has a certain degree of kind of accuracy and sensitivity and things like that based on yeah. its commercial uh, consumer-grade sensing. Whereas a, a professional-grade one, if you want that somebody at a hospital might give you at the Mayo Clinic or something to wear, um, it's like, you know, five or $6,000, different kind of grade. But the reality is the machine learning predictions for your outcome <laughs> health, the same. Right. So is that available from a healthcare point of view and licensing? No. Regulatory, no. Is it going to be? Yes. And so you're going to see this and, collision. And how far off do you think that is? Oh, three, four, five. It's not that far. No, no, years. And so you're looking at this collision of data availability, machine learning making predictions that say, you know, uh, Steve, you should sit down now. <laughs> right? Or Steve, look, we're not kidding. You need to lose weight. Right. Like, let's get serious. Let's have a conversation, like your right. device. <laughs> I've, I've had one of those lately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, 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 and you knowing why. Yeah. Like, look, you you need to, and sure, we all know these things in, in some sense, but being able to take a concerted, timely action that will change or save your life. Okay, that is now. Right. So we invest in Signal One. So Tony Putnam, one of the top Canadian yeah, entrepreneurs. That's a, that's a great looking company. And artificial intelligence experts, you know, long, long recently after selling his first company to Toronto Dominion Bank, and now has dedicated the next part of his life to basically this like in a different context in hospitals, but like finding a time to predict the signal that is going to save people's lives and is going to be integrated into medical health thing and make it possible for nurses and on the floor health providers to make much more rapid decisions about who needs care, who needs more care, who's probably okay now actually, and was not in a good shape before. And these signals aren't directives telling you what to do. They're notices that, hey, you need to look here and here's why. Yeah, And you talk to medical professionals, I have the doctors, the heads of medicine, the CEOs, the CFOs, this is going to out improve outcomes. It's going to save money. It's going to help people be more effective on time, which is a timely topic, of course. Yeah, And it is the future. Now, is it all of the future? Of course not. Humans right. are a part of this. This is a tool to help professionals be more effective, more That's efficient. Awesome. Is awesome. That is awesome. I was so excited to do this deal. I'm beyond comprehension excited about Tommy and his team and what he's going to accomplish. Wow. So there's one. Yeah. And back to your question, that is a category. Healthcare right. is going to change entirely over the next decade. Yeah, I worldwide. agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's the largest single spend in the United States by GDP. It's it's just, it's going to change everything. And And hopefully for the better. I mean, there are lots of capitalistic issues here and lots of people can argue about how this is done. And, you know, certainly the way Canada or the UK delivers healthcare is far different than the United States. Yeah. With different problems and different revenue driving requirements and partnership requirements and a lot of people's ecosystem to think yeah, through. I've, I've been advising, you know, different organizations that are doing, that are in the Communitech kind of space. Right. right. And, right. you know, how they, they have a limited set of resources. They're, trying to balance fintech, green tech, healthcare. And I I firm believer like it's I know green tech is the topic of the day, but healthcare is is where it's at in my mind. Like me if, too. If and you have limited resources. And so it's like I don't often go to tech talks anymore Saturday mornings, right? Like and so like I mean, the fact that I'm at the University of Waterloo listening to the health the health research department and the computer science department come together with Vivek there and all the people and the faculty members in the act talking about the launch of their new healthcare technology initiatives because mm -hmm. they believe for the next 35 years, this is their focus or one of their pillars. Yeah. And so like another example here, right? Like, um, okay. Like in back to data, we're back to data. Okay. 
data quality, data improvement, data accessibility. So there are things you can do for a huge percentage of kind of data you often need, not always, but sometimes you need to label data. Like this is good, this is not good, this is bad, this is blue, this is green, whatever. Fine. So like this is a problem at scale. And so unsupervised learning is a big deal, but the reality is supervised learning is better in certain cases. So you need to supervise and you need to label, label, label. And so um, in this case, they showed an example that they've been doing as a research study. And I, I apologize that I don't have the research name. I wish I did in my head. But mm, okay. uh, I watched, watched the presentation. I'm like, they're taking streams of data um, and they're allow- they, normally an expert would label it. And then you'd mark an incident happened, something happened, something happened. And so what they're doing here is they can train people, just normal, normal human beings, not, not, not 12-year educated right. Harvard Medical School researchers, right? Like normal human beings to look at this data and make this observation. This, this, not this, this, not this, at scale. And then that data then fed into machine learning model to make predictions. Mm-hmm. And in like 90% of cases, outperforms experts. 90%, and not only that, they can tell which 10% won't. So they can take the 10% of diagnostic cases, send it to an expert to label, but the other data could be labeled by normal people using crowdsourced agreement. Wow. And you're like, whoa. Think about that for a minute. So what that leads you to say, which is what a lot of machine learning people already know, and they sort of roll your eyes probably, but I'm a normal human being. So it's like, (laughs) um, is like, wow, we are going to be able to take this data and build predictions that are using huge crowd aggregated experts that are humans, expert intuition. It's not really intuition so much as pattern recognition. And then create models that are actually usable on the fly constantly. And so you look at the categories of what this means. Like, uh, uh, here's an example. People always say, don't invest in hardware. I'm like, Stop saying that. Like what generates this information is specific types of sensors, cameras, heat sensors. Like they do the blood pressure by firing a laser in, right? That's how they do it. Like stop saying that. Like this hardware generates data. Data generates knowledge. Knowledge generates value. Like if you don't- You still have to take a picture with something. You got to take a picture. (laughs) I always tell people, this is a little embarrassing. Software runs on hardware. (laughs) It's important. Anyway, so I think we're seeing this. This is not a surprising conversation. Yes, somebody else might say, well, quantum computers can change the world. I think that's true too. I think the timing is harder to predict. Yeah, I think it's longer down the road. AI is here. AI is, people hate AI is dead. This is not the case. And- um the availability of data is the actual trend of high quality data, which has been the resistance. In many ways, AI hasn't even happened yet. No, it, and it's, so, they're still trying to figure out how to find the quality data, you know, on a timely basis. Timely basis. And and, and, the, and it's becoming, this. I, I using an example at breakfast this morning. So a friend of ours, who, who you know, Bernie and I were talking this morning with his team of, of, of earlier stage investors yep. at breakfast. And I was saying to them like, well, let's talk about your, your AirPod in your ear. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, that thing has a machine learning model built into it that is doing waveform modification. And so those things just got approved like recently in the United States to be used as a uh, a medically diagnosed uh, medical device. So what happens is sound is coming in mm-hmm. and sound is coming out. And of course, it's mixing it and blocking right. things. And that's why you don't hear dogs barking or whatever. Like, But it can also... Uh, amplify your voice for me so I can hear across right. a room. And I happen to have cocktail party effect where I don't really hear in a crowd. And so for me, I could have that now yeah. and change the setting on it and say cocktail party effect. And now I hear. Yeah, I still remember my first job in high school was up there in the Arctic, sticking those little pins in the ground so that these big trucks could just thump the ground right. and send sound waves down and tell them where the oil was. 
It, exactly. And, you know, and I, I've talked to some of these, these, these trained people too recently and you're like, and you're like, why? And you're like, because of that, because right. they can do using machine learning models, predict the fragmentation of roadbeds. Right. And now you're talking about predicting the size of rocks and you're like, oh, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means they can save hundreds of millions of dollars about fixing the right train track at the right time using yeah. these models and the right sensors and whatever. It changes everything. And then you talk to an expert in trains, they know it. Right. We just don't know it because we're not trained people. Like yeah. you talk to an expert in maybe, maybe, maybe recruiting. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And so that's that. Um, that was well, that, that's been, that's a great way to leave it. Steve, I think we've, we've, uh, yeah. you've given us enough, uh, the, those people out there enough to, to get a hint. I, I just like to say, you know, that it, the more and more I get to know yourself and others that will be on this show or have been on this show is that there is some, you know, they can argue about what the top 10 qualities are about leadership, but I still think smarts and integrity are the top two. And you got both of those, my friend. And I, God bless you, you for helping be supportive of the show early on. Um, I'd love to have you again, uh, you know, in the future when we can find this kind of time together. But I'm uh, on behalf of the listeners and myself. Uh, thank you and God bless. Thank you, Dave. It's make sure you call me back when you have 10 million listeners. Thanks, Dave. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. This has been the RBK Show. Stay resilient. Find us at 